Right now, I want to invite you to pull your message notes out of your worship guide. We are in this series. And again, if you're new to our church, we are finishing an eight-week series. It's one of the longest series we've done as a church family. And I've got the job today to try to catch you up, bring you up to speed, and, and do my best to land the plane for where we've been and hopefully send you out of here with an entirely new view for how we live our life and how we express our faith. And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, if you're not a Christian, this is a really good Sunday for you to be a part of church because hopefully something will be said that will renew your interest in what it means to follow Jesus and who he is and what it's all about. We began week number one in this series talking about Christians and Christianity have a major brand issue in the world today. Like our brand just isn't great at all. Uh, If you look at the way culture views the church, if you look at the way many people kind of stereotype us as Christians in the church, it can be summarized best, uh, I think like this, Christians are judgmental, homophobic, moralist, who think they are the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everybody else is going to hell. That's for all of you who missed week number one. And, and the reality is, if, if that's not the way you feel, you at least know people who feel that way because that's a sentiment that's pretty popular in the world today. That's why I said we have a brand identity issue as Christians. And then week number two, we looked into the remarkable story of Anne Rice, very famous author, wrote all the Vampire Chronicles, Interview with the Vampire very outspoken, brilliant atheist. I mean, very smart, educated woman. Uh, and, and for years was like one of the leading atheist voices in America. And in 1998, radically converted to Christ. And if you've never heard her story, you need to listen a week too, because it is a remarkable story of how she found Christ. And then in 2010, on her Facebook page in the month of July, she publicly announced to the world, I quit Christianity. I'm no longer a Christian. I'm done. I'm out. I want nothing to do with Christians. And here's the way she summarized Christians. Christians are quarrelsome, hostile, disputatious. That was a new word for many of us. We've now tried to work into our vocabulary. That's how smart she is. And deservedly infamous group. That was the way Anne described Christians. And since we've started this series, I've heard some amazing feedback and reports and stories from people who who said, finally, somebody gets the way I feel about the church. Or even worse, I've heard people say, finally, someone understands what I've experienced from Christians, what, what, what I felt from the church. And the problem, when you really study it, it's a terminology problem. That's the issue. What we discovered week number one is when you look at the word Christian, the word Christian is only mentioned three times in the entire Bible. And all three times it's used as a derogatory term to, to, to classify Jesus followers that Jesus followers would never, ever, ever call themselves. So the problem with the word Christian is it's not defined. You can't find a definition for what it means to be a Christian. And so as a result, you can make being a Christian mean anything you want it to mean. You can literally live and do whatever you want to do, and you can blame it on Christianity, and you can hide behind Christianity, and nobody can tell you otherwise. 
But Jesus used a far different word to describe his followers. And it's a word that's uncomfortable for us. It's disturbing for us because it was so narrowly defined. Jesus called his followers disciples. Disciples. And his followers referred to themselves as disciples. And if you choose this word over being a Christian, then there is absolutely no doubt to how you are to live your life. Because Jesus so clearly, clearly defined what it means to be his disciple. In fact, at the end of his ministry, he gathered his followers together and and, and basically he's giving them the final marching orders, the specific instructions. If you miss everything else, like, like if you forget all about the 10 commandments and the other 613 laws of the old Testament, you never live long enough to read what the apostle Paul will write one day. Here's the main thing. This is the number one thing I want you to get. And he said to them by this, this defining characteristic, this one thing, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, if you love one another, in other words, he's saying, I want people to recognize you. I want people to say they must be Jesus followers because look at the way they love one another. Look at the way they love their wives. Look at the way they love their, I've never seen marriage like that. I've never seen people treat their children the way those people treat their children. Look at the way they love. And then one day, a group of Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, they came to Jesus with a trick question. They did this to him often. And they had an answer in mind. And, and, and sometimes Jesus, being as smart as he was, would just totally ignore their question because he knew the intent behind the question. But one day they came to him and they said, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And before they had a chance to interrupt, before they had a chance to say anything, Jesus followed it up and said, and the second is like it. And they said, well, we only wanted one. And Jesus said, I know you just wanted one, but I can't give you just one. I got to give you two. And the second one is like the first one or it's equal to the first one, or or according to my father, it's the same as doing the first one, or the best way to put it is don't try to do the first one if you're not doing the second one. That's what Jesus is saying here. You can't do the first one. You can't love the Lord your God if you're not loving your neighbor as yourself because they go together. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then again, before they had a chance to respond, Jesus does something that is so profound and so significant and so powerful that honestly, I don't know how we miss this in the church. I mean, out of the entire Bible, what he's about to say next is one of the most powerful statements Jesus ever said about our faith. And so many of us have missed the significance of it. It was so powerful that 25 years after Jesus said it, the apostle Paul wrote about this very text and expounded on it in a letter to the church of Rome. So powerful that 30 to 40 years later, the apostle John took this, this, this idea, this thought, and he expounds on it in one of his letters. What Jesus said was all the law, all the law, meaning everything, every verse, every idea, Every scripture, every Bible story, every concept, every psalm, every proverb, every prophecy, every epistle, every gospel, 
all the law and the prophets hang, are fulfilled by, depend on these two commandments. Do you understand how powerful that is? I mean, do do you grasp the weight of that concept? Do Do you know what that means? It means every time we teach a lesson, every time we open up the Bible, every time we go to scripture to look for an answer on marriage or an answer on parenting or an answer on anything, Every time we open up the Bible to see what is God's view about a certain group of people in society, every time we open up scripture and we look for a law or we look for a command or we look for a thou shalt or thou shalt not, Jesus says every single time you filter all of it through the filter of love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't you ever use my word. Use scripture to hurt or to disenfranchise someone else. Because the entire law, the entire Bible filters through love your neighbor as yourself. And that brought us in the last week, week number seven, with this big idea, this this big question that I proposed. And I said, you know, take permission to not even try it yet. Like, like, take permission to just think about it for a little while, because this is such a, a radical concept to so many of us, but it brought us to this question of what does love require of me? In every situation, what does love require of me? And I don't know if you can understand what a game changer this is. This is so powerful. This is a filter that if we as followers of Jesus would apply this in every situation, every relationship, every encounter in our life, we would literally change the world. You see, here's the problem. I grew up in in, in a southern church and my natural inclination is not to go there. My natural inclination is to forget all about the intent of the commander and focus on the commands. My natural inclination is to open up the Bible and look for a you ought to and a you have to and and thou shalt and thou shalt not. And Jesus says, this is what you need to do. That's my natural inclination. And Jesus says, before you do any of that, before you go there, you've got to ask the question, what does it look like to love my neighbor the way I love myself? So if you're a follower of Jesus, even if you're not quite ready to do it, to act on it, you at least need to pause and ask the question. And what I want to do for the next few moments is with the best of my ability, and, and believe me, this, I'm so inadequate at this because there's not really words to describe how powerful this is. But for the next few moments, I want to, I want to do my best to explain to you how absolutely brilliant this concept is. That what Jesus has just given us is one of the most brilliant things anybody could ever give us. I mean, think about it. Jesus, who only had a handful of followers, who who had no leverage at all, no influence in the world that he lived, lived in the armpit of the Roman Empire, could have said anything to get the movement started. I mean, think about it. Jesus could have said, buy this. This is the one thing. And, and if you do this, everyone in the world is going to know you're my follower. Fill in the blank. He could have said a hundred different things right there. 
I want you to understand what he chose to put in that blank was so significant. Why? Because it's found in each of our personal experiences. Like what I know about you and what I know about me is there are two groups of people. There are two categories of people in life that have had the most profound influence on you, that have made the most profound impact on your life. Two groups of people. And can I say something about these two groups of people? It wasn't their belief system that had the impact on you that it had. It had nothing to do with their belief system, in fact. It, it, it had nothing to do with whether or not they were a Christian or whether or not they even attended church on Sunday. But these two groups of people have made you the father that you are today, the mother that you are, the husband that you are, the wife that you are. They're the two groups of people that have either made you successful at relationships or unsuccessful at relationships. And again, they didn't influence you greatly because of what they believe. The two groups of people are simply those who've hurt you and those who loved you. Those who hurt you deeply and those who loved you profoundly. See, anytime you find yourself in counseling and you're bumping up against a situation that you don't feel like you can get through, a good counselor is going to take you right there. And you know what makes this message so difficult for me to deliver as a pastor? What makes it so confusing to so many of you? See, here's the big issue with this message. For most of us, and me included, because it's my story, we were hurt the deepest by people who had accurate theology. We were hurt the most by people who believed all the right things. We were hurt the most by people who knew every chapter in every verse to every sin we ever committed. We were hit, hurt the most by people who never missed a Sunday in church. We were hurt the most by people who on the outside look like fine, outstanding citizens, but behind the scenes destroyed your soul, took the life out of you, set you up for an adult experience that has been so painful you felt like you've had a limp through life. And you find yourself constantly overcompensating, not because of what somebody believed, but because of the hurt they caused you. Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. In prison today, there are priests and there are pastors with impeccable theology who believed all the right things, but they hurt children. And those children are now adults and they've been impacted by these men, not because of what they believed, but because of what they did. And on the flip side, there, there are some of you that are here tonight that because of the way somebody loved you, they loved you in such a profound way, they set you up with such an amazing outlook on life. Like you've got th- this extraordinary self-esteem and identity and you know who you are and, and, and you just, you've got this incredible outlook on life because somebody loved you deeply. And, and to be real honest, their theology wasn't all that sophisticated. And they couldn't always find every chapter and verse. And their church attendance may not have been as good as others. But they gave you something that your soul was hungry for. And they made an impact on your life. Maybe it was a coach or a a teacher, father, grandfather, aunt, uncle. Somebody in your life loved you. And when you now tell your story, you talk about the people that hurt you. 
And you talk about the people that loved you. And it goes way beyond belief. It goes way beyond Christianity. It goes way beyond church attendance. And we parent, we husband, we wife, we lead. We relate to people out of the doses of these two things. Because here's the reality. The way you've been treated, the way you've either been loved or the way you've been hurt, has so much more to do with who you are than even what you believe. See, what you've been through in life, the the way that you've been treated has so much more to do with who you are today than even what you believe. And And I say all of that to set up why I said what Jesus gave us was so extraordinary and so profound and so significant because this is our best play. What Jesus gave us is the greatest opportunity we have as followers of Jesus. See, here's the problem. Somewhere along the way, and I don't have time to get into it, but it's absolutely no mystery when and where it happened. But somewhere along the way, Christianity evolved and it changed and it shifted and it, and it moved from behave to believe. You see, when Jesus started it, it was all about how you behave. It was about how you behave. But somewhere along the line, it shifted from how you behave to what you believe, what you believe. And we've decided that as long as we have the right belief system, it doesn't really matter how we behave. It doesn't matter how we treat people. It doesn't matter how we hurt people as long as we believe the right things. You know, if we would just do what Jesus did instead of constantly arguing about what Jesus said, we change the world. We would absolutely change the world. Believe that's easy. That doesn't require any effort on your part at all. You can believe anything you want. It's cheap and it's free. Behave. That requires a brand new worldview, doesn't it? Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love people the way Jesus loved you. It's so different, isn't it? See, here's what Jesus didn't say. A new command I give you, believe correctly. He didn't say, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples, that you believe correctly. No, it was always behave. Do you know how much time, energy, and publishing has gone into people who say they follow Jesus, arguing about what Jesus said? If we would just do what he did. See, in the beginning, it was so simple. In the beginning, all they had in the early church was one command, love one another. And that's so brilliant. And the reason it's so brilliant is because Jesus understands the heart of man. He understands our experience and our journey. And every time Jesus interacted with anybody, he interacted with them with their story in mind. It was their story. And we've all been there. There's been people in your life that have just gotten under your skin. They've aggravated you. They've annoyed you. People that you can't stand to be around. And then one day you hear their story and it changes you. It changes the way you see them. It changes your tolerance for them. It changes the way you treat them. It changes your your whole attitude towards them because you heard their story. See, every time Jesus was interacting with anybody, he always had their story in mind and he always answered the question, what does love require of me in this situation? 
And that's why Jesus was so confusing at times. There was one time where a rich guy came to Jesus and Jesus said, all you need to do is you need to sell everything and and, and you need to follow me. And then there was another time, another rich guy came to him and, and all Jesus said to him was, you're so close. Why the difference? See, Jesus didn't have just, you know, a list of verses. He just applied on everyone in every situation. He saw each person with their individual story. Can you imagine what would happen in the world if just the followers of Jesus would put down all of our weapons and put down all of our, you know, you know scripture hammers and, and everything else and, and simply in every encounter, in every situation, ask the question, what does love require of me? What does it look like to love my neighbor? What does it look like to love one another? Think about it. Think about the brilliance of what Jesus just did. Again, if we are the people we are, the parents we are, the husbands we are, the men we are, the women we are, because of the people who either hurt us or loved us, that means that we as followers of Jesus, we have two options to make a profound impact on somebody's life and somebody's future. And it's not what you believe. It's the way you treat them. You can either hurt them and affect their future negatively, or you can love them and affect their future positively. You've been trying to win family members through your belief system. Your belief system isn't going to save anybody. It's never going to win anyone to Christ. It's the way we treat each other. So as we end this series, as we bring this entire thing to a close, let me give you three practicals, three kind of handles to take this whole series from the theoretical to the practical. Three things that you can begin to apply to to ask and answer the question, what does love require of me? Here's the first. Don't do anything that will hurt you. Don't do anything that will hurt someone else. And number three, don't be mastered by anything. What does love require of you? Love requires of you that you never do anything to hurt you. Why? Because your heavenly father loves you. And when you hurt you, you hurt him. So what does love require? Love requires, and that's just like my son. Like there is nothing my son can do to hurt himself that does not hurt me. When when he hurts him, he hurts me as his father. And you're the same way. So what does love require me? Love requires that I never make a professional decision, a moral decision, a sexual decision, a financial decision, a personal decision that hurts myself. Because when you hurt yourself, you hurt the ones that love you. You say, well, it's just between me and me. No, it's not. No, it's not because you're loved. Your heavenly father loves you and there are other people that love you. And when you hurt you, you hurt the ones closest to you. What does love require? Number two, it requires that you don't do anything that'll hurt someone else. And why is this one such a big deal? And let me just clarify. I'm not talking about military or law enforcement. The New Testament is so clear about that. I'm talking about interpersonal relationships. And why is this such a big deal? Why is this, why, why is this so important? Because every single person you ever meet, every single person on planet Earth, every single person you're ever eyeball to eyeball with is somebody the Father loves and somebody Jesus Christ died for. 
And you know what makes us very difficult as Christians? Is that includes our enemies. That includes the people who hurt us the most. Because God's desire for them is to save them and love them and change their heart and change their life. And this is where it gets really tough to be a follower of Jesus because there's times where love requires confrontation. There's times you're going to have to get out a scalpel, but you're never going to have to get out a knife. There's times that love requires confession. There's time that love requires forgiveness, but it requires that you never do anything to hurt someone else. And then here's number three. Love requires that you not be mastered by anything. Why? Because when you're mastered by something, it will keep you from loving someone. When you're mastered by something, it'll keep you from loving someone. Nobody should have to compete with your alcohol. Nobody should have to compete with your porn. Nobody should have to compete with your prescription pills. No one should have to compete with your anger or your temper. What does love require? Love requires that you get rid of anything that masters you because God is your master. Love requires that you get rid of anything that competes with the lordship of Jesus Christ in your life. And I know some of you are thinking, well, that's just so much easier said than done. You don't understand how long I've struggled with this. Like, this is who I am. This is something I fought. This is something I hate. This is something, you know, I don't want to be mastered by this, but I don't have any other, you know, hope to ever be free. That's the beauty of God. That's the beauty of the church is you don't have to stay the way you are right now. We actually have an entire small group here designed for you called life, living in freedom every day. That, I, that, that my desire is that every single person in our church goes through life at least once. I've been through it three times as a pastor. And every single time I go through it, the Holy Spirit speaks something new and shows me something in an area that I need to work on, that I need to deal with, that I need to grow in. So if this resonates with you, if you're master, it could be something minor like a habit. It could be something major like an addiction. It could be an anger, a temper issue. In a month, when we start our fall semester, please join life. Don't be mastered by anything. So what does love require? Well, simply put, don't do anything that hurts you. Don't do anything that hurts someone else. And don't be mastered by anything. You know one of the problems that just happened? And I'm not, when, I, when I say just happened, I don't mean like this week or this month. I mean like literally in the last minute and a half just happened. Is some of you are sitting out there thinking, I'm so glad my husband's here to hear this. I'm so glad my wife is here to hear this. I'm so glad my kids are here. I can't wait to, to email this message to my son that's off at college. Can I just say, isn't that the perspective that hurt you most by others? Wasn't that what they did to hurt you the most? Told you how you need to live and told you what you need to do and had all the answers for you and could beat you up real good with the Bible. Isn't that what hurts you the most about others? What if we just trusted God to take care of the people we love? What if we just use this message as a mirror to see how we are doing? And we didn't worry about anybody else. See, here's what we've learned through this series. When we leverage anything other than love, we lose 
our leverage. See, we're losing the war with culture right now. We've lost our leverage in culture. And can I say, it's not because we're at war with politics. It's not because we're at war with a certain group of people that has a different lifestyle or belief system than us. It's not because of Democrats or Republicans or conservatives or liberals. The reason we've lost the war, the reason we've lost our leverage is because many, many, many decades ago when the church had the power, when the church had control, when the church had influence, when the church had the ability to persuade politics and to persuade legislation, we abandon love. And we began to leverage something else. It wasn't always that way. Once upon a time, there were just a handful of people that followed Jesus. And all they had was this one simple command. Love one another. I mean, think about it. They didn't have the New Testament like we have it. If anything, if they lived in Ephesus, they may have had a fragment of Paul's letter. If they they lived in Rome, they may have had a chapter or two of a letter from Paul. They may have had just just a piece or a portion of Mark's gospel or Matthew's gospel. They didn't have the Bible like we have. They had one command. Jesus gave them one specific command that I want you to get right. Forget everything else. Just get this one thing right. And by the way, if you get this one thing right, everything else hangs on it. Like if you just get this right, everything else will be taken care of. They had this one simple idea. What would it look like if we loved one another? What would it look like if we... Followed the intent of the commander and not just his commands. What would it look like if love one another became the filter for how we interpret everything else? Well, we know from history what would happen. It's how the West was won. It's how a a group of nobodies overthrew the largest empire in the world with no army and no weapons. It's how they took a paganism that we can't even imagine living under. That the people fully bought into and believed a belief system that was so mythical and so far-fetched. We couldn't ever imagine worshiping a, a Caesar as a god or worshiping Jupiter. It's how they literally turned this belief system upside down. How? Love one another. And here's what happened when they got it right. People, they didn't feel coerced by these Jesus followers. They said, well, you know, I don't feel like they're going to kick me out and I don't feel like they're going to push me in. I feel drawn. There's something so irresistible about the way they live their life. There's something so incredible. Like when I see the way they do marriage and when I see the way they parent and I see the way they love each other. There's something so irresistible that I feel drawn to be a part of them. And here's the other thing that began to happen. When people got around these followers of Jesus, they'd say things like, I feel guilty. Like, I feel guilty when I'm around them. Not because they make me feel guilty, but when I see the way he treats his wife, I don't treat my wife that way and I feel guilty. When I see the way she honors her husband, I realize that I don't treat my husband that way. When I see the way they parent, when I see the way they love each other, I realize I'm just not that good and it makes me feel guilty. But you know what the strangest thing is? Even though I feel guilty, I've never felt condemned. 
Not one time have they ever condemned me. They've never judged me. All they do is love me and all they do is embrace me. Like I feel guilty because I'm not as good as them, but not one time have those Jesus followers ever made me feel condemned. See, here's the truth. You can't preach people into loving Jesus. You can't preach people out of habits and addictions. You can't preach people into loving their wives. And at the same time, you can't legislate it either. You're not going to legislate people out of habits. You're not going to legislate people out of lifestyles. You're not going to legislate people into loving their husbands and loving their wives. See, that only happens when it is seen. And it is so attractive that it becomes irresistible. That's how it happens. So maybe, just maybe, we'll be the generation that'll ask the question, what does love require of me? Maybe that'll be the filter we put on our life. And and here's what I know will happen. By this, everyone will know that we are his disciples because... We loved one another. Wouldn't it be so cool if we were the generation that got to rebrand Christianity? That got to change its reputation because we went back to the main thing? Like what would happen if we just went back and got that one command right? Like forget everything else right now. But what would happen in our community, in our marriages, in our homes, in our families, in our neighborhoods, if we just got the one command right? Love one another the way that I loved you. Can you just imagine what would happen in the world if we just got that one thing right? Be powerful. Be powerful. Would you close your eyes for a moment and just bow your heads with me? As we prepare to leave here today, I want to invite, if there's anybody here that needs to come home. And you know what that means. You're away from God. There was a time where you felt like you were right with God and you're just away from God right now and you need to come home. You need to come home. And here's what you need to know about the Father. He's not mad at you. He's not disappointed. He's not upset. He's not saying, well, look, you did it again. None of that. He's absolutely going to celebrate and party when you come home. He's not going to hold it against you. He's going to forgive it and forget it and love you. That's how he's going to receive you and treat you if you come home. And then there may be somebody here tonight who needs to make a decision to follow Jesus for the first time. I'm not asking you to become a Christian because we don't even know what that means. I can't even give you a definition for it. But you're here tonight and you need to make a decision to follow Jesus. To live for Jesus. To be a part of God's family. And what I'd like to do is I want to pray with both groups of people, whether you need to come home or whether you just need to make a decision to follow Jesus. So with nobody looking around, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come to the front. This is between you and God tonight. But just so that I know who is joining me in prayer, with no one looking around, if if you need to pray with me tonight for either one of those reasons, would you just raise your hand quickly so that I can see it and I know who's praying with me tonight. Right now, just raise your hand. Thank you, thank you. Is there anybody else? Thank you. Is there anybody else? I appreciate those hands. Here's the prayer. It's very simple. The first part of the prayer is giving Jesus an invitation. And, and listen, you, you won't fully understand what this means 
That's why it's a step of faith. But all I want you to do right now is in your heart, say, Jesus, I invite you to be the center of my life. The second part of the prayer is a forgiveness step. We all have sinned. Sin is that Bible word that means you missed the mark. You either did too much or you didn't do enough. Either way, you missed the mark. And your sin separates you from God. And here's the thing. God gladly wants to forgive you of it. But the catch is you have to ask. So right now in your heart, would you say, Jesus, will you forgive me for my sin? And then the last part of the prayer is just the gratitude step. Just say this in your heart. Say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. And thank you for welcoming me into your family. In your name, amen. You can look up here for just a moment. I want to encourage those of you that prayed with me to take one more step tonight. And this is something you can do by yourself. It's not something you need to do publicly. But on your connection card, there's two boxes. One says, I'm committing my life to Christ. One says, I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. The prayer you just prayed is one of the most significant prayers you'll ever make. And we want to pray for you. We want to pray God's blessing over this journey that you're beginning. And so we'd like to know about it. And the only thing that you're going to receive from us is an email. And all the email will give you is some of the next steps of what it means to follow Jesus. We're not going to call you. We're not going to chase you down. This decision is between you and God. We're just going to give you the clear path. We're not going to try to force you to do it and, and follow up to make sure you're doing it. That's, that's, that's up to you. We just want to make it very clear what the next steps are. So fill that out. Drop it off one of the tithing offering boxes. We also have Bibles available outside free of charge. It'll change your life. Just start reading the Bible. There's also this great booklet we have out there that says, what on earth am I here for? If you made that decision to follow Jesus, natural question, what on earth am I here for? It's a very short booklet and help you answer some of those next step questions of what it means to follow Jesus. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? Father, in the name of Jesus, I just pray blessing over everyone here. And God, as a church family, I pray that we'll get this command right. That love will become the filter of our church. That this community, North County, would look at us as Jesus followers and say, look at the way they treat each other. Look at the way they do marriage. Look at the way they love. And our life will become so attractive that it's irresistible to people that people want to be a part of this community, not because of what we believe, but because of the way we behave. Because we love like nobody loves. Let that become the signature of who we are. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Have a great week, everybody.